I keep on hearing this phrase, spiritual warfare. My question is, what is it? But I just follow Jesus, so is all this even important? Is there really a war going on? If there is, then is this our fight? Or is it God's? And if it is, what is his weapon? Well, there are six big questions for session one on the cross. What is spiritual warfare? Is it important? Is there really a war? Is this our fight or is it God's and what is his weapon? And I thought in responding to that, I would just take a few headings. So just let me show you what I intend to do in this first session. Talking about the cross, obviously. But when I'm looking at the cross, I really believe that this is why I want to start here. Because the cross provides a perspective on spiritual warfare, which otherwise we might miss. And so I want to pick up on... Three things. One is that it provides a perspective on the past. And then if you can guess the other two, it's the present and the future. Because in a sense, I think if we look at those things, it's going to help us as we then go on to the other sessions when we're going to look at the realm, uh, the war itself, and the end. What's the conclusion? So that also picks up on the past, the present, and the future. But in this first session, I want to just pick up on the cross. And the reason I want to do that is because I believe that the cross really ensures that we engage. So the cross triumphs over disengagement. So if you're one of these people who thinks, as we started off, but, you know, I just follow Jesus. I'm not getting all this spiritual warfare stuff. When you come face to face with the cross, um, that discourages that kind of let's disengage attitude. The cross confronts us with the fact that we need to be involved in the battle. So that's where we're heading on that. And uh, I think we're, we're all set. So... Let's just pick up that theme. And where I want to pick up is a scripture that you will probably know well in Colossians chapter 2. And it says this in verse 13. And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. And that thought that really the cross shows us how Jesus deals with that whole spiritual warfare issue. Principalities and powers. He actually disempowered them by what he did on the cross. Transforming our lives by what he did on the cross. So for me, the cross has to be the pivotal point. You know, when we started putting this teaching conference together, we wondered whether we should go the realm, the war, the cross, the end, because it was a kind of logical sequence. But one of the things I've noticed, when we talk about spiritual warfare, people often sort of kind of go off on one, if you know what I mean. They're, they're into sort of the spooky, the untangible, the, the unseen realm. And, and, and somehow the cross brings us back in a very down-to-earth way to say, no, this is a real battle. 
You know, it's not just something up in the sky. It's something that actually engages us in day-to-day living. And so it's that groundedness of spiritual warfare that I want us to pick up in this first session. And I think going to the cross and seeing what Jesus has done on the cross is really the way to see what the battle is about. Some of the questions that that came up in that uh, introduction were, is it our fight or is it God's fight? Well, the answer really is it's both, isn't it? We need to be engaged, but he's won the victory. So it changes the perspective when you look at the cross. Is it important? Is there really a war? The cross shows that there is. And it gives us the context of the whole spiritual warfare situation. So when we are looking at this, one of the things that I'm aware of is that when I read the New Testament, the way that the apostles encourage us to engage in spiritual warfare is actually very down to earth. It comes down to practical things. It's not just all ethereal and up there. There are times when Paul talks about wrestling with beasts and these kind of things, but really the spiritual warfare we're engaged in is about living right, doing things right, and getting on and being there for Jesus as foot soldiers in this Christian life. And so I want us to come back to that with that very real strong sense of that. We may not be fighting flesh and blood because we're told that. You know, we're not fighting flesh and blood. We're fighting principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places. But at the same time, we are fighting with flesh and blood. (laughs) It's our flesh that's involved in the fight, and it's the blood of Jesus that cleanses us from sin that makes all the difference. And when you look at someone like William Booth, who, who had a particular emphasis on spiritual warfare, I mean, obviously, he started the Salvation Army, so he was thinking warfare from the start, wasn't he? And, and when he was looking at it, he, he realized that the thing that he needed to emphasize was the blood of Jesus and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And it was very down to earth. It was about overcoming the devil. It was about, you know, not trying to work out every principality and power. I mean, I've been in conferences where we spend a long time trying to work out what the territorial spirits are. And, uh, you know, you just think, hold on a minute, it doesn't even go there in the Bible. So why are we spending so long trying to work out what the territorial spirit is over someone's back garden? Uh, and, and really, you know, if we're talking about territories, we're obviously talking about areas that are bigger than back gardens anyway. And, you know, we, we sometimes just need to come to a much more down-to-earth understanding of spiritual warfare. So I hope I haven't lost anyone now who's thinking of walking out because they came for a really spooky day. But, you know, we're here because we want to be part of what God is doing. We want to get down to this matter. You know, he's called us to be part of his army, and we need to know what that involves and how it works. So this is where we're going to look. And I want to use the cross really to gain the perspective that we're going to need all day. If we're going to look at the realm and how it all began and everything else, we need to see how the cross impacts on that. If we're going to talk about the actual battle that we're involved in, we need to see how the cross is involved in that. And when we look at the, the end time, it's because the victory has already been won on the cross. So we need that kind of understanding. So this is my starting point, really, and something that I'm really passionate about. So how do we get perspective on the past from the cross? In Genesis 3.15, we've got that first indication that God is going to deal with things through allowing his son to suffer. You know the passage? This is when when God is speaking into the situation after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
And there in verse 15 of Genesis chapter 3, it says this, as God is speaking to the serpent, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And that indication right at the beginning that God is going to intervene in some way and intervene using humanity, even though we know that he was going to come in the flesh in order to do it himself. The indication here is that, that humanity is involved in the battle from day one. You know, it's, it's man that fell, and so it's man that's going to be involved somehow in that restoration. But it's beyond us. It is beyond us. And so we need a champion. And the only champion that can really be the one that transforms us is God himself coming in the flesh and being prepared to suffer for us. But you know, there's so much more to the cross than just thinking it's about your sins and my sins being forgiven. He certainly died to take our place. There's absolutely no doubt about that. He died because we deserve to die. He passes the judgment. The wages of sin is death. And then he's prepared to come and die in our place so that we don't have to pay the price. He prays it for us. We all know that. But there's so much more to the cross than that. It says in Scripture, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. This was the big moment when God sorted out everything in history. And it's announced right at the beginning. So the cross is there almost on page one of your Bible. That the seed is going to come and the seed will suffer. But the interesting thing is this, that the suffering of the seed is nothing compared with the suffering that will be inflicted upon the enemy. The enemy will receive a death blow. His head will be crushed. But the, the seed, Christ come in the flesh, will be bruised. That's a big statement. And you can see that already God is orchestrating things. Yet there are some big questions here. One big question is, is, is where does evil come from? And you know, a lot of people go off track on this, uh, and through history this has been a, a huge problem as people have tried to work out, and, and you can see in popular culture that what we end up with is a battle between good and evil, and they are equal and opposite forces. You know, you can see this in, even in popular books and so on. It's, is good going to triumph or is evil going to triumph? And it looks as if what's being said is that from the beginning there's been good and evil. I just want to say, from the beginning it was not so. If you look in Genesis chapter 1, it says, in the beginning, God. And that implies that there was a time, if you can put time outside of time, when there was nothing but God. <laughs> and, and God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So we're not those that believe that somehow the evil is something that came out of God's heart and God's intention. But there was obviously rebellion at some point. And, and the Bible begins us to give that kind of indication. And we also know that because God is supreme, that whatever we're facing in terms of evil is no match. It's not equal and opposite forces. But what we do come up against is the fact that we have a God who's omnipotent, that's all-powerful, omnipresent, able to be everywhere at once, omniscient, all of these things, God is and the devil is not. And yet, one of the things that so often creeps in when people start talking about spiritual warfare is you get the impression that God's almighty and the devil's almost almighty and it's just a close thing as to who's going to win in the end. And it's just not like that. 
When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was raised far above all principality and power and every name that is named. You know, that means the gap is huge. It's not just a near thing. It's a vast gap. He's far, far above. And it's always been that way. So what is it that we're dealing with? If you look at it in the context of eternity, where from everlasting to everlasting he is God, there's obviously a point where God created an angelic order. An angelic order was created in order to worship. To worship God, yes, but also to aid us in our worship, because God had us in mind too. He had us in mind as the crown of his creation. But he set that angelic order in place because the Father wanted the Son and the Spirit to be worshipped. This wasn't selfishness. I mean, you know, just imagine what, what kind of God it would be who's so vain, who says, I need worship, come on, worship me. But because God is a triune God, the Father wants the Son and the Spirit to be worshipped. The Spirit wants the Son and the Father to be worshipped. And that's one of the reasons why when you look in the Old Testament and the angels are worshipping God, the, the, the phrase that comes up so often is holy, holy, holy. Now, you can say that that's just a construct um, in the original Hebrew, because it's a way of saying holiest. But actually, I think it's more than that. I think the angels see the triune nature of God, and they acknowledge that as they say, holy, holy, holy. And, and so you've got this amazing reality that God had created an angelic order to worship him. And somehow within that, there's rebellion. I don't know the details, and I'm glad I don't know the details. And the reason I'm glad I don't know the details is because if I did, I'd have had to make them up. Because they're not actually written in the Bible. <laughs> and some of us go off on tangents on these kind of things. But I can tell you there's enough in this book for you to know what you need to know. <laughs> and the speculation isn't going to help you. <laughs> but we need to hold on to the realities that are there. And the realities that are there is this, that there, there was obviously a rebellion. And that serpent that came, it may take you right to the book of Revelation for you to realize that that's the devil. <laughs> but it's clear that that's what it is. That one that came tempting in the garden is almost certainly the one that led the rebellion. And you might think, well, hold on a minute, how... How is there so much evil in the world if we're talking about, you know, a devil who's not omnipresent, not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's got none of those characteristics. How come there's so much evil in the world? Well, the answer is that, that, that when he fell, he didn't fall alone. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing about the Bible is this, and this is why I really wanted to do this spiritual warfare conference, because... There are things that the Bible teaches that if we grasp them, they really help us. When you read in, in 1 Peter about your adversary, the devil, can you see what he does? He brings it down to one person. Even though we're aware that in order for him to do what he does, there must be a, a legion of other powers and forces behind him, he focuses us. And one of the things I want you to get out of today is that you don't need to be having your spiritual battles by trying to discern which beast you're wrestling with or anything else. You're up against the devil. And actually, that spiritual warfare strategy is really important. 
I think the church could lose the fight by getting too complicated here. Uh, one of the things I've noticed with, with the Salvation Army in the early days was that William Booth was absolutely clear, we're just going for the devil. You know, didn't necessarily go on and out about principalities and powers. And, and the whole emphasis was, let's shame him. Let's bring him down. Let's bring him down to nothing. And, and that kind of attitude really is, is the way the scripture encourages us to fight the fight. That you go at that target. Now, in most warfare situations, and you only got to look at recent history, fairly recent history, to realize that actually that's very much the way that battles are won. That you take the whole system and you locate it in a person. Yeah? If you take the Second World War, who was the enemy? Nearly everyone will say Hitler. You know? It wasn't this nation, that nation. It gets located in a particular target. And, you know, when, when people are rallying the troops, and, and think of the apostles now as being people that are there to rally the church into the spiritual warfare, they, they don't want to tell you that there's all this, this going on and that going on. You focus on the enemy. And, you know, when you're dealing in spiritual warfare, we certainly have an enemy that you can focus on. Uh, this isn't fallen humanity you're dealing here. You're dealing with something that's more serious and more rebellious than that. But the focus, you see the way the, the serpent is spoken to in the garden. We're looking at the cross in terms of the past. It says, he will bruise your head. And it says, that if that's enough. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That if you get that victory, then the victory is won. So in some ways, I want to focus you today on saying, that's your enemy. So you might say, but I came here wanting to know all the principalities and powers that are around in the... You don't have to know all of them, okay? There will be times when you sense that you're up against this, that, and the other. But, you know, it just comes down to that location. And, and that's something I learned when I look at the cross in terms of the past. That when it was first announced there in Genesis 3, it was focused. We're going to destroy that enemy. And that God's going to send his son, the seed, in order for that victory to be won. And that fatal blow is just so important because it's that wound that secures the final victory. And, and you need to see that. The, the, the blow of the cross was actually sufficient to bring him down. And, and whatever we do in our battle, we are re reinforcing a victory that has been won and bringing it home in that kind of way. So that's the first thing I want to say about the cross as far as it applies to the past. And we'll say more as we open things up. But let me say a little bit about what it means in the present. I read that Colossians 2, 11 to 15 passage. Because, you know, one of the things the cross does, it liberates us to fight. Okay? It puts you in a position where you can engage in the battle. So you're removed from being the victim to actually being the victor. And that is such an important transition. Because if you're going through life with a victim mentality, your spiritual warfare is not going to be effective. 
you're going to be thinking all the time, poor old me, this is happening to me, and something else. But there's an emphasis which is there, even in that passage that I read in, second, uh, in Colossians, that, that brings it out really clearly that, that we triumph in Christ. Now, what does he do in order to liberate us? What has the cross done to set us free? Because I believe that there is a liberating that comes from the cross. And, and one of the challenges I face is this, that, that I, I, I feel the church needs to rise up in greater confidence. We need to rise up in greater confidence, particularly when you're dealing with the enemy. Because, you know, when you're dealing with the enemy, he, he will constantly remind you of your past in order to disempower you. Yeah, you, you cannot overcome me because you can't overcome this and you haven't overcome that. And before you know where you are, he's, he's coming against you, fulfilling his job description as the accuser of the brethren. He's just accusing you yet again. And before you know where you are, you're disempowered, whereas the cross is about liberating you. It's about liberating you. It's about saying you're not the victim, you're the victor. Christ has become the victim, and in being the victim, he became the victor. So that we don't go around thinking that we're victimized. Now, the first thing that we need to do is to have the sin problem dealt with in our lives. You need to know your sins are forgiven. Because if you don't, the devil's just going to keep on reminding you and reminding you and reminding you. And we need to understand what forgiveness really means. I mean, the cross is just so powerful, it means that there can no longer be a charge against you. Even in the court of law, the whole principle of being justified is, as someone put it, it's just as if I never sinned. I know that's a little bit of a trick of turning justified into just as if I'd. Um, actually, there's another way I like it, uh, in Papua New Guinea, in the pidgin language they use out there, when, when you might use the word justified in your preaching, the person translating you into pidgin will go, Ise him all right. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is a great way of doing it, you know, because that's basically when, when you're justified by God, it's as if God says, Ise him all right. <laughs> Which is really good. And that's what it means. That the Lord has liberated us. He says, you don't carry that anymore. I paid the price. You're free. You go free. You walk out of the courtroom. Yeah, you were sentenced as guilty, but hey, <laughs> the price has been paid. You know, you, you've done your time for the crime because someone did it for you. That's what it means. And that's huge. And you might say, well, oh, but you know that, that's not fair. But hey, hold on a moment. It's not just about you, is it? There's a battle out there that needs to be won. I'm putting it like this in spiritual warfare terms. You need to be liberated in order to be part of the liberating army. That's why, you know. It's nice to know your sins are forgiven, but it's not so that you can go around boasting to everyone, look how clean I am, look how pure I am, look how perfect I am, look how justified I am. It's not that. It's because now when the devil comes and says to you, you're rubbish, you can't fight me, you can turn around and say, yeah, I can. <laughs> yes, I can. You, you can't keep accusing me on this one. And this is an amazing strategy of God in terms of spiritual warfare. 
It's an amazing strategy that he's going to beat the devil by raising up a whole army of people who've sinned just like everyone else that are not carrying the guilt of sin upon their lives in a way that paralyzes them. Isn't that amazing? And the devil knows the difference between people who are forgiven and people who just don't care. Hmm? Do you understand what I mean by that? There are some people who don't carry a sense of guilt because they just don't care. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I've learned to squash my conscience. I've learned to squash everything else. You know, I just don't care. But the devil knows the difference between the people who just don't care and the people who know they're forgiven. But I want to say something else to you as well, because when you look at what Paul writes to the, the church in 1 Corinthians 6, there are certain sins which you do where the devil will make it particularly hard for you. But actually, he's got two tricks in his book. He hasn't got many. If anyone gives you a compendium that's this big, saying this will help you understand the strategies of the enemy, don't get it, okay? Because it's rubbish. Uh, the strategies of the enemy can be written in a pamphlet, you know? Because, to be honest, he is totally unoriginal. Yeah? Uh, let, let me give you an example, all right? You know, if you've got a pastoral ministry and you're counseling people, sometimes you'll have people that come in and sit down and say, oh, pastor, you'll never have heard this before. And you immediately think, well, not since the last person walked out the door. <laughs> And you just suddenly realize that the devil is totally unoriginal. Yeah. And, and he seems to have just two major strategies. <clears throat> Either he makes you feel incredibly guilty, or he puts you in a place where you don't care. And, and either way, he, he feels he's got you, you know. There's a lot of people out there at the moment that are living because I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other. I don't care. It doesn't worry me. My conscience doesn't squeak. Public opinion has changed. Public opinion doesn't condemn me. But you know, there comes a moment when, if you're not careful, the enemy will stop laughing and go, hey, you know, great, look, I've managed to trick them all thinking this is all right. <laughs> to a moment when they turn around and you'll feel absolutely condemned and dreadful because he switched tactics. Switches tactics from letting you get on with it to fulfilling his job description as the accuser. And suddenly he's back on you. And you just think, what do I do with those kind of situations? And, and sometimes, you know, that sense of being justified is not enough. You, 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 you know you're legally acquitted, but you still feel contaminated. Now, you, you know, you might not have been in that kind of position, but I can tell you this, there are certain things which... If you've done them physically in your body, it's almost as if you still feel contaminated, even when someone says to you, you're legally acquitted. But the good news is this, that when in 1 Corinthians 6 it lists those things, it actually then does something which theologians would probably think is incorrect. Because it says this, such were some of you. Okay, this is in verse 11. Such were some of you. So in other words, it's possible to switch from being this to being that. Hmm? 
Now, the world goes with that. I mean, they're all for happy for people switching, but you can only switch one way. I don't know if you've noticed that. You can't switch back. <laughs> but, there's a, but it's great here in Scripture. It says, such were some of you. But this is the important bit. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I'm just being really practical at this point. Someone who's done lots of pastoral counseling over the years, I can tell you there are times when you sit with people and you know that you want to see them liberated so that they can be actually part of the solution, no longer feeling victimized and part of the problem, when you've got to say to them, listen, no matter what you've done, God has washed you. And that sense of washing is so important. Actually, it tells us in Hebrews that when we come to the Lord, we come with our bodies washed with pure water and our conscience is sprinkled from an evil conscience. And that's the big thing that God is doing. It's got nothing to do with whether you deserve it or not. It's that God is raising up an army to pull down the enemy's strongholds. And that army is going to be made up of people who know they're washed, they're sanctified, they're justified. This is what God is doing in the present. It's what he's doing in your life. This is why you're here today. Before anything else, you need to know that you're liberated. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. But it's the freedom that will enable us to enforce that victory over the enemy and to enter into the fullness of what God's got for us. So you need to know that whatever you've done, you can be washed from it. And you can be set apart from it, which is what sanctified means. It means set apart from it. You know, it's no longer you with that thing. You're, you're set apart. Now, holiness is something that we grow into and we become increasingly, sanctification is normally considered to be a process. But it begins with that setting apart. You're no longer where you were. You're no longer in that category. You're in a different category. It says in the Bible, in a great house there are many vessels. Some are there for sort of, you know, not very pleasant use. But others are there for, for good purpose. God has put you in the good purpose category. No matter what you were before, he's washed you, he's sanctified you, he's legally acquitted you so that you can now be in a different place. That's happened because of the cross. And I know we don't deserve it, but it's part of God's strategy in order to win the victory. Secondly, what else does it do in the, on the cross? Well, that passage in Colossians 2 talks about circumcision. Now, circumcision was something that everyone was getting screwed up about because it was part of the old covenant and all the rest of it. But you know what God really wanted to do? It wasn't to circumcise the flesh in the way that we understand it. He actually talks in Deuteronomy and other places about wanting to circumcise people's hearts. That's what he wants to do. You know, that the rest is just a symbol, you know? And it's not just picking on the men. We all need our hearts circumcised. And why do we need our hearts circumcised? Well, I'm talking about the cross in terms of the past, the present, and the future. You know, in the moment in the Garden of Eden, 
When the devil managed to persuade Adam and Eve, representatives of humanity, to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, two things happened. Number one, they died spiritually. That day, in the day you eat of it, you will die. And something happened that moment on the inside of them. They no longer had that sense of being alive. Now, you've got to realize that when God breathed life into Adam, he didn't breathe all the life he could have breathed into Adam because he wanted there to be more life available if they voluntarily went and ate of the tree of life. That's not too difficult to work out, is it? That You, know, you wouldn't have had a tree of life offering more life if you got all the life you could have possibly had. So there was obviously a sense in which they were in innocence and not in the full liberty of living in what God had wanted them because they'd never eaten the tree of life. But even the life that they did have, something happened on the inside of them that day. Because they said, in the day you eat of it. You know, it, it wasn't, you know, at some point in the future you will die a physical death. Because actually, Adam lived an incredibly long time after he ate that fruit. But he lived as a dead man, compared with what he was even in his innocence. So he lost his innocence, and he lost the access to the tree of life, which would have given him more. So how did he carry on? Well, he'd eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, hadn't he? And, and how he carried on is exactly the same way that everyone in the world carries on today. You, you carry on without spiritual life inside you by using your physicality, you use your emotions, you use your will strong though it be, or weak, and very often the ones who claim to be weak-willed are stronger-willed than anybody else. You notice that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. I know someone who complained that their donkey was particularly stubborn. Uh, and, and someone said, you know, your donkey's got a lot of willpower. He said, I think he's got a lot of won't power. <laughs> and there are some people that are like that. You know, willpower can be won't power in some people's cases. But it's the same thing. It's just the flip side, isn't it, really? Strength of that will coming through. And intellectually, we become intellectually alive. In the day you eat of it, you'll be like God, you'll know good and you'll know evil. I mean, that was a trap. You won't die, they did die. They didn't know evil the way that God knew it as something external, they knew it as something internal, which was a totally different experience. But boy, what they experienced also was, my goodness, our eyes are opened. Do you know, Eve, you're naked? <laughs> you know, we need to hide from the presence of God. We, we need to do something. We need to make some aprons. We need, you know, suddenly they were operating on a different plane. And they were living out of their flesh in a way that they hadn't done before. And it was almost as if there was like a fleshly overgrowth to compensate for the spiritual death. And we need to realize that the cross comes to cut back that fleshly overgrowth in our lives. To cut it back so that it's possible for us to live according to the spirit and not according to the flesh. This is part of what the cross does in order to liberate us. You're not going to fight the devil just by coming up against him in your fleshly strength. You need the power of God's spiritual life on the inside of you to engage in those fights. So the cross does that. 
What else does the cross do? Well, we can go, we can, it releases us from legalism as well, actually. Now, legalism is not a problem. God brought the law in with good intent. He wanted to move into the promised land with them, and these are the house rules. If you're going to live with God in the promised land, you've got to do this, 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 these are out, that kind of thing, you know. But the reason that God could say on the cross, I've taken the handwriting that was against you, which was the law, and I've nailed it to the cross, the reason he could say that was that if you've got the life of God inside you, you do not need the law hanging over you. Because you don't become what's called antinomian, as it were, living lawless lives. You actually live lawful lives, but you live it from within, not from an imposition that comes from without. That's why it says that when we come to Christ, we're new creatures. He takes out the heart of stone, he gives us a heart of flesh, and he writes his law on our hearts. Someone put it really well. Once the law is written on your heart, every single part of that law becomes a promise. So instead of you shall not kill hanging over you, you shall not kill becomes a promise that comes out from the inside of you. Do you understand the difference? You've now got the law written on your heart. This is how the cross liberates us. And it's liberating us so that we are actually in an effective position where we can operate on God's side and bring transformation. We'll talk more about that. But let me just pick up on the third area, which is the cross and the future. <clears throat> and uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 to 21, you probably know the passage. It says, God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself. That is huge. That's huge. I once remember hearing a former Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, it was Michael Ramsey, being asked the question on the radio, do you believe that when Jesus died, he died for our healing? Well, as Pentecostals, we'd all get very excited about that, I guess. But then what he said was, I believe that when Christ was on the cross, he was reconciling all things. And I thought, yes, that's the big picture, isn't it? That's the big picture. That the cross was about bringing a total reconciliation of everything that was out of kilter, out of alignment, that somehow the cross was able to bring it all into that kind of balance which honours God. And that means that now... Although we don't yet see everything reconciled, the reconciliation work has been done. If God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, then the cross is saying to us, there's a work that's finished. There's something that's happened. It says everything moment. It, it looked like the ultimate rejection, didn't it? This is Christ being rejected on the cross. But that ultimate rejection proved to be the ultimate victory. And one of the things that's really interesting in this is the devil never anticipated such a, a defeat. He didn't reckon that he was going to get defeated in this kind of way. Even though he had that warning in the beginning, you know. 
You will bruise the seed's heel, but he will bruise your head. I don't think it really penetrated the devil's dimness. I don't mind insulting him. He spends enough time insulting us to think. I don't think it penetrated just what that would mean. And that he didn't realize that as he was busy bruising Christ's heel on the cross, that actually a death blow was being delivered to him. Because, you see, the death blow didn't come in the way that he expected. It didn't come in a physical fight. It came when everything that the devil tries to do and was trying to do was turned upside down. He expected to be defeated, if he was going to be defeated, by a conquering king. Didn't he? That's what he would have expected, you know? Come on, bring it on, you know? <laughs> let, let me take you on head to head. That's what he would have expected. Some great end time battle will settle it all, and, and that's very often what people think. But actually, the end time battle, all it does is reinforces the victory of the cross. The death blow was received then. It doesn't actually put it quite like that when you read it in Genesis, but it is in fact saying that the moment that you inflict a wound on the heel of the seed, the seed will simultaneously be inflicting a mortal wound upon your head from which you will never recover. And how did Jesus do that? Well, it was by totally turning the tables on the devil. If you've got a mindset that believes that it's only force that overcomes and you actually inflict a blow and Jesus in the midst of that is giving God the glory even when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In the next breath he's saying, into your hands I commit my spirit. Never a moment of a break of trust and it's that kind of way in which Jesus handled things that that meant in that moment the devil knew he was done for. And we know it is finished can be interpreted in so many ways. You know, there are some people preaching such a way it was almost as if Jesus said, I am finished. You know, <laughs> the last breath, I'm finished. But it wasn't. It, it is finished. It was a triumphal cry, not a last breath whimper. It is finished. It is finished. It was an amazing moment. You know, there was a moment when the priests stood in the Jordan with the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders and the waters were held back so that the people could cross that river. And the priests stood there until every single person got across that river. They didn't just wait till the able-bodied had strode across before everyone else. They waited till the mum with the little children managed to get across. They waited until that elderly lady who was struggling and that elderly man who was limping got across. And it was like that 
on the cross when Jesus was there. He, he did enough. It says in Isaiah, he saw the travail of the, his soul and was satisfied. Could look down through the ages and can see that the work was completed. That's the power of the cross. And that, for me, sets our perspective. Right? From that, I'm quite happy now to talk about the realm, the unseen realm and everything else. I'm quite happy to talk about the war that we're engaged in. I'm quite happy to talk about the end that will come. But to have that foundation that it's the cross that really is the moment that tells us what spiritual warfare is all about. So let's pray on that. Let's seal that in our hearts and lives and then we can move on into other things. Father, I just want to thank you for the power of the cross. I know that I've only scraped the surface in the things I've talked about today, in this session. But Lord, I, I stand amazed. Any sense in me that wanted to back out and say, no, I don't agree with this warfare stuff, just has to disappear when I see that you gave yourself so freely to liberate me, that I might be the person that you want me to be and be engaged in your purposes in the way that I should be. So Lord, inspire us, Lord. Those of us who've come to this conference, if we don't get anything out of it, other than the fact that we've been liberated, let us know that liberation. Lord, if there are people right now who need to be convinced of their sins forgiven because the enemy just keeps on coming back and back and back at them, there are people here who need to know they've been washed, that they've been sanctified. Lord, do it now. Lord, if there are people who need to know that the cross is sufficient to cut back that overgrowth of the flesh, which is all about I, 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 let them see that the cross cancels out I. It's no longer I, but Christ. Lord, let us see the power of the cross. Let us see the power of the cross in terms of defeating the devil as well as liberating us. And let us see the power of the cross in terms of reconciling all things in the way that you had it on your heart to do. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we are people that have been transformed by the power of your sacrificial act. And we give you praise, Lord Jesus, and we thank you. And thank you, Father, for sending your Son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to pay the price. In Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Ten-minute break, folks.